invite you to open your Bible again this morning to Paul's letter to the Galatians, and we'll be looking at Galatians chapter 4, Galatians chapter 4. We'll be um, looking specifically this morning at verses 8 through 20, but I'm going to start reading verse 1 so we have a sense of the context. Paul is pleading with these believers not to give away the true gospel, the pure gospel, and pleading with them to, uh, to um, remember all their privileges they have in Christ, all the freedom and the joy they have freely given to them uh, by grace. Let's give our attention, Galatians chapter 4, beginning of verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word this morning. God in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's living and active, and thank you, Lord, that it is... always relevant for the reality of our lives. I pray that today, once again, your spirit would give us ears to hear what you have to say to the church. And uh, Lord, I pray that in hearing, we would believe uh, and we respond in faith and obedience. That is your desire. May Christ be formed in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our text this morning is a, uh, it's an insight into the Paul's sort of inner life, the emotional life of the Apostle Paul, as it were, as he carries out his gospel ministry. There's a lot of emotional language uh, in our text. Uh, Paul talks about being afraid, verse 11, about being in anguish, in verse 19, uh, about being perplexed, 
in, in verse 20. He's a, he's a baffled and bewildered apostle. Confused and confounded and, 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 uh, and wounded uh, by what he sees happening in the churches of Galatia. Uh, he, he's at his wit's end concern, uh, concerning what to do with them. He, he is so deeply concerned for their spiritual good and they seem so bent on their spiritual harm. And he's in anguish over it. Uh, maybe you've had that experience. Maybe you know what that feels like to, to, um, to care for someone deeply and to care specifically for their spiritual good. Maybe it's a, a child that is not walking with the Lord. Maybe it's a family member or, or a co-worker or a friend. And your heart's desire, your passion is to see this very thing, to see Christ formed in them. You want to see them flourish and thrive in a, in a saving, life-transforming experience of Jesus Christ. It's what, you, it's what you want for them more than anything. And you can't help but grieve when, when their lives give no evident concern for the things of God. No evident concern for their own soul. Their own eternal well-being. And they, and they live their life, and, and maybe they're good moral people, but, but you know they have no relationship with Jesus Christ. Or maybe you're seeing them entrapped in enslaving sins. And you plead with God, don't you? If you care about your loved ones, you plead with God to rescue them. You can't help but care. The Holy Spirit within you compels you to care. And that's exactly the apostle's experience. His anxiety and his anguish are, are spirit-propelled. Christ is living within him, and his, his passion desires to see the church of Christ thrive in the truth of the pure gospel. He wants to see Christ formed in them, to see their lives increasingly molded into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ, and, and a, a life that is built on the foundation of all the promises of God, a life that is pro uh, propelled by the truth of the gospel, the love of God to them in Christ Jesus. And that desire is what causes the anxiety and causes the anguish. And we'll be looking at, then, uh, at that this, this morning. Uh, first, just noticing our three points will be the anxiety of the apostle, the anguish of the apostle, and the Thirdly, the aim of the apostle. Uh, Paul begins by expressing his deep concern um, over what's happening to these churches. Under the influence of these false teachers who are tempting them and telling them they need to come back under the law of Moses or go, or go to the law of Moses if they're Gentiles. They need to take on the law of Moses and be circumcised and, and keep all the, the, the rituals and regulations of the law in order to be really saved. And, uh, and, and Paul is watching this happen, and, and something awful is happening in these churches. These people are committing spiritual suicide. They're turning away from the life and the freedom that is theirs, given to them freely in the gospel, and they're embracing the bondage of religion, religious rules and regulations. Uh, Paul has he's, he's reminded them of the magnificent blessing that we have in the gospel and that they have in the gospel. That, that as a free gift, by the sheer grace and mercy of God, they who were formerly slaves have become sons of God. 
They've received the most exalted status a created being can receive. Angels do not get this status. To become the very children of God writes to the inheritance of God's children. Heirs with Christ. The right to have a loving, intimate relationship with God and the right to call Him Father. Angels can't take that name on their lips. And all of this freely given to them in the gospel. This is, this is what they've received. And this is everything. This is life and joy and health and peace for this life and the world to come. This, this is coming home to the Father who loved you before the foundation of the earth. This is finding your forever family. The family you were created for. This is finding the everlasting love that you most deeply long for. This is finding a destiny greater than you could ever dare imagine or dream. All of that freely given in the gospel. And that is what they are being tempted to throw away by embracing righteousness through religion. To help them grasp the, the sheer incredible, unimaginable folly of what they're doing. Uh, excuse me. Paul um, reminds them of their former life. Reminds them, uh, formerly, verse 8, when you did not know God, when you were in ignorance of God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. Now, uh, he's writing to, many of them are uh, out of a Gentile, they're, they're Gentiles, they're out of a pagan, utterly pagan background. And um, it was a life defined by not knowing God. Uh, they, they, um, they had no idea of the, the, the reality of God, the nature of God, the holiness of God, or the gospel of God. And, and to, to live a life not knowing God, it's just another word for a life of slavery. They were in bondage, Paul says, to those uh, that are by nature not gods. When you live ignorant of God, you can't help but live a life of bondage, of slavery. Um, th th that you will worship something. You were created for that. You can't help that. And you will give your life to something. Maybe it'll be your reputation. Maybe it'll be your, your pleasure, your pride, um, your, your career, your relationships, your happiness. You'll give yourself to something and you'll live for that something. And that something will enslave you. That something will hold you in bondage. That something... Um, is powerless to make you right with God and to save your soul from death. And that is life outside of Christ. The life, it's a life of ignorance of the true glory of God and the glory of the gospel, and it's a life of slavery. And that's the life they had formerly lived. But then, verse 9, they, were known, they, they came to know God, or Paul says, right, the theologian, well, actually, God knew you. God always takes the initiative. And to be known by God is to be claimed by God, to be chosen by God before the foundation of the world, to belong to Jesus Christ. It means to be given to God. It means to be loved by God and called to be saints, as we read in Romans chapter 1 uh, this morning. And so this had been their experience. They had been given to Jesus and, and, uh, and experienced the love of God. And, uh, and, and this is where the apostle should say, um, praise God for His 
grace. I just thank God continually for his grace to you. That's what he does in other epistles. If things were as they should have been in the churches of Galatia, this would be the point in the letter where Paul just gives thanks to God. Look at, for instance, Ephesians 1.15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, you re, uh, thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And he'll do this in other epistles as well. This, is, this should be the place where the doxology happens. But it doesn't happen because things are not as they ought to be. Instead of rejoicing, there's a rebuke. Verse 9b. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world whose slaves you want to be once more? Instead of celebrating their faith, Paul questions their sanity. How in the world, having been rescued from this former way of, of bondage and death, all freely through the gospel, how in the world can you be now running back to your former bondage? Uh, I remember um, growing up, my father had a, a question that he would ask when he was particularly frustrated with, um, with something that we did wrong. And he, the question he would ask is, what's wrong with your head? And, and it wasn't really a question. It was more of a, a straight-up rebuke. Um, uh, it was a plea, right? Engage what's up here into the reality of your circumstances. Uh, that, that's exactly what Paul is doing. Think, people. He's pleading with them. Having been given all the, just freely given the glory of children of God, the, 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 the honor of sons of God, why would you throw that away and go back to bondage? Why would you throw that away and go back to religion? You see, that's what they're doing. They're, they're, they're fleeing to religious rules and regulations for their righteousness, for their standing with God. Verse 10, you're, you are observing days and months and seasons and years. Well, that's what pagans do. They have festivals and seasons and ritual observances and holy days. And those, those um, are, are ways of currying favor with the gods. So if you're, if you're a Muslim, there are, there are seasons, Ramadan, where you, you do certain things and you don't do other things in order to curry favor with Allah. But that's just the nature of human religion. This is, these are attempts to gain righteousness through what you do. But Paul says it's, it's just bondage and slavery. Religious rituals can't save you. They can't transform you as a person. They cannot make you right with God. They cannot save your soul from death. The only thing religion can do is make you religious. That's all it can do. And that's true whether you're a pagan or a Jew. Uh, Paul does something really astonishing here, particularly for his Jewish readers. Because um, he makes this, this, this amazing claim that the Jew who is seeking his righteousness by the laws of Moses is just as lost as the pagan seeking his righteousness through his pagan rituals. They're, they're, they're equally lost. The, the rules and regulations of both religions are just as weak and worthless. Neither can make a man right with God. And so if you're a Jew... Or if you're, uh, if you're from a pagan background, <clears throat> if you're going back to the law of Moses, like the Judaizers are claiming, 
There's no difference in that than your pagan priest calling you back to your pagan rituals. It's all the same thing. Paul will say in Romans chapter 10 concerning the Jews, I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. It's an ignorant zeal. They're ignorant of God. He says, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel where God makes manifest a righteousness that is not by the works of the law, though the law testifies to it, but it is a righteousness by faith in Christ Jesus. And every religion that is not that, you see, every religion that's, that's, that's not God's way of righteousness revealed in the gospel is just legalism in its bondage, no matter how good the rules might be. The law of Moses had very good rules and regulations. They were God's rules and regulations. But they have no power. No power to transform us or make us right. We need to remember this because there is a propensity in God's children to go back to law. There's something in us that likes law. We like, there's a certain clarity to it. Just tell me what I need to do. There's a certain security and comfort in it, right? Well, I'm doing, I'm doing, the, I'm, I'm doing the rules, I'm keeping, I'm keeping the law. I'm, I'm, I'm doing what's expected of me. And, 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 and people can comfort themselves in that. That if, um, and I think we have this in, in, in our conservative reform circles right here in West Michigan. That, that people unconsciously assume that if, if we live by the right religion, if we, if we go to the right church and belong to the right denomination, if we profess the right theology, if we, uh, if, if, if we try to live a moral life, well, then we are in a right standing with God by virtue of these things. And it's absolutely not true. None of those things make you right with God. And, and, and so you see... Um, they're just, those are just weak, worthless principles of religion. And those who live according to those things and take comfort in those things will find to their horror on the last day when they meet Jesus Christ face to face, Jesus will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. And your denominational membership card isn't going to help. And your Reformed theology card is not going to help. And your, your moral lifestyle card is not going to help. Jesus didn't know you. You didn't know Jesus. And nothing, you see, can fix that except the gospel in faith. And so this is why Paul is alarmed. This isn't just a little theological tangle he's got going on here. Their eternal soul is at stake because they're, they're missing the gospel. And so he says in verse 11, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Now how could he work over, labored over them in vain? Well, his labor would be in vain because if these, if these Galatians keep this course, if they pay attention and, and follow the Judaizers, their faith will be in vain. It will not save them. A faith that looks to law and religion and rules for righteousness is a faith that cannot, will not save you. And so Paul's deeply alarmed. 
But there's more than alarm, there's anguish. And, and as he speaks to these brothers and sisters, notice he uses um, endearing language. Brothers, he says, I entreat you. I beg you. I plead with you. It is a vulnerable, blood-earnest appeal. And he calls them brothers to remind them that, that he is their brother. He's their spiritual sibling in Christ. And as a brother, he has every right and obligation to do everything he can to, to help them see the devastating error of their ways. He can't just stand by and say, well, you know, have it your way. This is not a popular stance in the world in which we live. We live in a world where you can, you can argue over everything. You can tell people they're wrong about all kinds of things, but not about their belief, not about their faith. Uh, to challenge people on what they believe, to say to someone that what you believe is wrong is just seen as completely over-the-top judgmentalism. I mean, you're way out of bounds. Well, uh, and that can happen even in the church, where we just, we just don't dare go here and talk to someone about concerns that we might have about what uh, they believe or, 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 or what they practice. Well, Paul does not share uh, those hindrances, that, those, those concerns. Uh, Paul believes that because he is their brother, he has an obligation to speak to them and to speak to them in, in very um, bold and clear language about this error that's going to destroy them. And we should share that concern. We belong to each other. We have an obligation to each other. However, we also need to use the tender, endearing language that Paul uses. He's not beating them over the head. He's pleading with them, entreating them. Notice, though, the strangeness of the appeal. It sounds a little odd. I plead with you, I beg you, be like me. Now imagine someone came to you that way, right? And just with tears in her eyes. Brother, I beg you. Would you just please, please be more like me? I think you'd rightly uh, think something was amiss. Uh, well, that's what Paul does. What does he mean? Well, well he, he means be like me in the freedom and joy that I have in Jesus Christ. Be like me uh, when Paul says, I'm not looking to establish a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but I'm looking for my righteousness in Jesus Christ alone. And I'm looking, um, my, the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And it is not even I who live, but Christ who dwells within me. And one thing I do, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. That's what he's calling them to. That sort of life, a life that's saturated with Jesus Christ. And Paul reminds them that they had once joined him in that pursuit of Christ and, and in that enjoyment of Jesus Christ. When he came to them and preached the gospel to them, they had welcomed him as a messenger of Jesus Christ, as an angel, or the Greek can be angel or messenger, of God, as Christ Jesus himself. 
And Paul had come to them in weakness. He had some bodily ailment. We're not told what it was. That, that, um, and so he was there in Galatia, but while he was, he was there with his bodily ailment, it was a trial to them, but they loved him and they received him. They did not despise him, but they delighted to receive Paul and Paul's gospel, Paul's message. Paul says in verse 15, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. In the world of that day, your eyesight was considered your most valuable uh, physical sense. To be, to be without sight was, was the worst thing. And, and Paul is saying that in their love for him, and their love for the gospel message that he was bringing to them, they would have gouged out their eyes for him. That's how greatly they esteemed him. That's the, that's the, um, the joy, the blessedness with which they received the, the gospel. But that was then... And something's changed. What has become of your blessedness, your happiness, your joy in me and in the gospel, verse 15? What happened to it? It's disappeared. Their delight has turned to disdain. Their, their loving concern has become contempt. Verse 16, have I then become your enemy by speaking the truth? See, what, what's caused this uh, their admiration to, to, to become animosity. And, and what's caused it is this, this uh, conflation of false teachers and truth. The false teachers, the Judaizers, uh, are seeking to shut him out. That's what he says in verse 17. They want to shut you out that you may, may make much of them. You see, the false teachers at root are not just trying to win people to a different religion, but they're trying to win people to themselves. They're looking for fans. Paul says in Acts chapter 20 that false teachers, this is what they do. They twist the scriptures in order to draw away disciples to themselves. That's what these false teachers are doing. Well, Paul wasn't looking for fans. Paul was looking for disciples, disciples of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul preached to them the word of Christ, the truth of Christ. That's the only message he has. We preach Christ and him crucified. Sun up, sun down. That's what we do. And that message Paul preaches with uh, unashamedly because it is the power of God unto salvation. And so he's preaching that message and, and, and they uh, are now, they don't want to hear it. They, uh, you see, when people veer from the truth, they don't want to receive the truth. They don't want to hear the truth. When people are attracted to a new teaching, they, they want to despise the old teaching. They they want to get, uh, you know, they, they despise the old teacher. I, I, I've had experiences of this. Um, I remember a time, a long time ago, visiting a, 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 some folks who had gone to another church, a liberal church that was undermining Christian faith. I asked them straight up, would you say that in your time at this new church, your confidence in Scripture has increased or decreased? And they'd say, we'd have to say it's decreased. And I expressed to them my concern for their soul. I've expressed to people my concern for their children as they, as they take children into those, into those contexts because it matters to me. And um, this is a, this, these are people that, that I had a good relationship with. But suddenly, um, one of them just turned in, in very strong anger and started accusing me of all sorts of things. I was the same person that formerly they had thanked for my gospel ministry. Same manner, same message. But now with a new teaching, new teachers, and the old teaching and the old teacher is no longer welcome. That is a really painful thing. And, but but I, you've had those experiences. 
right? Where, where you've had people that you used to be just on the same page with in the things of God. And you, and you delighted in the things of God together, but then, but then that friend or coworker, or family member got involved in, the, in a new teaching. And suddenly the things that you had, want, that, that fellowship you had once enjoyed has been, has been ripped apart. And suddenly now there's animosity even in the relationship. And you haven't changed. You're, you believe the same thing you believed back then. You, your, your manner is the same as it was then. And it, it is deeply painful. That's what Paul's experiencing. It's breaking his heart. He's in anguish over this. Somehow he's become their enemy when they had once walked in perfect fellowship in the gospel, in the truth of the gospel. And so he writes, I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ be formed in you. And that, and that reveals to us the, the aim of the apostle. Paul's life with them and his ministry to them was, was ordered by this single passion to see Jesus Christ formed in them. That, that's the objective that he pursued in all of his ministry and in all of his life and, and with all of his heart. That's what that's what Paul was about. He wanted to see sinners come to know Jesus Christ and come to confess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and come to be filled with the Holy Spirit of Christ so that they are a new creation in Christ. Paul's desire is to see people experience in truth the, the presence and the power of the living Jesus Christ in their life. He was not trying to bring them to, to a religious rules, but, but to the reality of a Savior. And to see Christ in them so that the love of Christ compelled them and the joy of Christ filled them and the peace of Christ ruled in their heart and the power of Christ transformed their life. That is Paul's desire. Friend, that is God's desire for you. God's desire for us is that Christ Jesus be formed in us. That increasingly the truth of who Christ is is shaping the way that we think and the way that we feel and all that Christ has done for us freely and promised to us. Those become the circumstances that increasingly define our life. And, and, and out of Christ being formed in us flowed the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience, and kindness, and goodness, gentleness, self-control, because Christ is being formed in us. We're not, we're not just people following a religion. We're not people just adhering to a doctrine. We're people who are experiencing by the, by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, something's happening in us where Jesus Christ himself is, is being increasingly formed in our life. That is the true Christian life and the true Christian religion. And because that's the mission of God, that's the mission of the Apostle Paul, and that is the mission of every true child of God. This is what we want. We want to see Christ formed in the lives of of others. Sometimes I'll hear people <clears throat> with good intent, this is not, but, but with good intent say things like, well, you know, my, my children are not really walking with the Lord, but at least they're going to church. Well, I don't even know how to respond to that. 
Maybe it's except to say, well, hopefully they're in a church where they're going to hear the gospel and, and, and God's going to use that powerfully in their life. We can pray and thank God for that. But, but we would never just settle for our kids going to church. We would never settle that for our own, for our own selves or for anyone we love. What we, what we want is this. And that's the mission that, that, um, that we feel in our heart, the passion we feel in our heart. We can't help but feel that passion if the Spirit is in us. It compels us to care that way. But that care, that, that concern, that passion will come with pain. It will come at a cost. I'm in the anguish of childbirth. There's a cost to gospel ministry. Whether you're a pastor, an elder, an apostle, or a parent. Whether you're a friend of, uh, as you long for a friend to come to Christ in this way. There, there's going to be a cost to that. And the cost might just be the cost of grief as you weep for those you love. You mourn a wandering child, or, or you, you grieve the lost lifestyle of a loved one. It hurts. There's the cost of, of tear-filled prayers as you pour out your heart to God for their conversion. There's the cost of conversations that are hard and relationships that are strained because you cannot be at peace and, and, and live in, in true peace when, when, when this stands there, this passion you have to see Christ formed in them. There's a, there's a cost to caring like this. Jesus talks about the cost of mission in John 12, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Eric Alexander, a preacher from the UK, tells the story of an older pastor who I had spent his years on the mission field and, and had come back home and was speaking at a large public gathering to young candidates who were hoping to go into the mission field. And now as he had come to the end of his uh, ministry, uh, he was there to tell them with humble thankfulness um, all that God had done through the gospel ministry and, and about a church in Christ that had been raised up in a particularly primitive uh, part of South America and, and men and women who had been in the bondage of paganism, uh, whose lives were now aglow with the beauty of Jesus and the glory of the gospel. And when he was done speaking, he, he went down from the stage and, and sat down and, and bowed his head. And a young man sitting behind him leaned forward and said to him, I would give everything I had to have a testimony like that. And the older man turned around and quietly said to him, well, that's exactly what it costs me. There's a cost to caring like this, uh, to loving like this, to having this desire. And as we close out this year and, and look forward to a new one, it's a good time, it's a good time to ask ourselves, is this what we really want? I mean, what, what do we really live our lives for? What's the aim of our life? Are we, are we in truth just pursuing our own comfort and security? Or is the, the desire of our life to see Christ formed in our life, in the lives of those we love? Even if it costs pain, even if it costs anguish, if it costs discomfort, is this what we really want? Isn't, isn't there something within you that says yes to that? The Holy Spirit within you 
saying, Lord, don't let me waste my life on things that are passing away, but, but let me be engaged in this one thing that, that matters more than anything, to see Jesus Christ formed in the lives of those I love, in the lives of, of my community, lives of my family and children. Isn't that what we hunger for? And, and I think this text just text calls us then to join the Apostle Paul in this, in this, uh, in this passion and in the, the pain that comes with it. Let that be the defining passion of our life. Let that be the defining passion of, of Harvest Church. To know Jesus Christ and to make Him known, even though it will cost. One of my prayers this year is that we would uh, be able to call an evangelist to come and help us engage our community with this message. And if that happens, it, there's going to be a cost involved. There will be people here who come, but Lord willing, who in, in some ways are not like us. Different language, different background, different lifestyle. And, and, and Jesus will call us to embrace them and to love them and to receive them and to speak with them and pray with them because he loves them. And because the mission, right, is for people who don't know Jesus Christ to come and, and find what we've been given so freely in our Lord. I believe that God blessed that. That desire, be, I believe he blessed Paul's desire, but the Judaizer heresy was turned back. It was threatening to take over the church. It did not. The truth of the gospel was maintained. The churches in Galatia were restored, and, and a letter was written out of that anguish, a letter that has blessed God's people through the centuries with pure gospel truth. And so God knows what he's about. Let me encourage, as I, as I close, those of you suffering uh, in the pain of gospel concern over loved ones today. I, I just want you to know from this text that you're not alone. The, this, is, this is what God's people feel. The apostle felt it. God's people throughout the ages have felt this, this concern, this, this pain for those that we love, to see Christ formed in them. And I want you to know that your, prayer, your, your, your tearful prayers are, are, are deeply pleasing to Christ Jesus as you follow in his footsteps. Remember, Jesus was the seed that fell to the ground and bears much fruit. And we have a right then in Jesus' name to plead that, that, that the, the conversion of our loved ones would be part of the fruit that he gained by his death. We have a right to appeal boldly to God for that, knowing that our prayers are pleasing to him. And as we live in our families and, and, and as a church in this community, let's live then with this goal that, that we might pray and speak and love till Christ be formed in us and in them his glory. Amen. Father, thank you that Jesus loved us and was willing to fall to the ground and die that he might bear the fruit of our faith. It is all because of Christ. And I thank you that Jesus now calls us to that road of discipleship, that road of pain, as we, as we care for those who are not saved. Lord, you know the names that have been on our hearts and minds and the names that we've, we've talked to you about, the names of children who are not walking with Christ and the names of friend, family members who've turned away, of friends or co-workers who simply are ignorant today of God. And yet, Lord, our heart is burdened for their conversion. We, we look around and we see a community and a nation and a world that's gripped in ignorance, gripped in idolatry. 
and our heart, Lord, is burdened. We want to see Jesus Christ formed in them. And Lord, we, we know that that comes at a cost. I pray that you would give us, Lord, the, the willingness, the freedom, the joy even to embrace that cost for Christ's sake knowing that we don't lose anything in this life for the cause of Christ that has not returned a hundredfold in the life to come. I pray, Lord, that as a church, we would move into 2021 with a clear mission, clear vision about who we are and why we're here. It's to know Jesus Christ, to experience Christ being formed in us and then to make him known. And I pray that we would have the joy of seeing conversions, both in and outside the church, the conversions of wandering children, the, the conversion of people who've never, never heard of Jesus before. I pray that you'd make us, Lord, that kind of a church, an apostolic church, a gospel church, a church that is um, delighted to know Christ and eager to make him known. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing a song that just reflects on the wonder of Christ being formed in us, yet not I, but through Christ in me.